turning to Matthew chapter 26. We are continuing in our exposition of Matthew. I predict maybe about 12 more sermons here in Matthew to finish by the end of 2005. Before 2006, we go through the whole Bible. So, that'll be very good. But here in Matthew chapter 26, we have come to verses 47 through 56, which really describe the arrest of Jesus. In this passage, Judas will come into the Garden of Gethsemane with a a crowd of people seeking to arrest Jesus and bring Him before the Sanhedrin with the whole goal of seeing Him be killed. And if there's anything that this encounter teaches us, it teaches us that Jesus Christ was a willing sacrifice. The opportunities for Jesus to escape or to defend Himself were many. I mean, in fact, as we go through this passage, we're going to see many, many times in which Jesus could have tried to stop His arrest or tried to escape or tried to resist it or oppose it. But rather than fleeing or fighting... Jesus permitted Himself to be arrested and thus brought to trial. And ultimately, it was Jesus who allowed Himself to be crucified on that cross. At any moment, Jesus could have said, enough. But praise God, He allowed it to continue. The title of my message this morning is, Our Willing Sacrifice. Not talking about our sacrifice to God, but the fact that the willing sacrifice is ours. That is Jesus. He is our willing sacrifice. When Jesus was placed upon the cross, He was dying for our sins. He was taking the wrath of God due us upon Himself. And He did that because He was willing to do it. And desires to do it. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus told His disciples, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. In other words, the death of Jesus was no accident. He didn't find Himself to be some heroic martyr who was killed by accident. No, the death of Jesus was accomplished by His choice and not by the choice of others. It was Jesus who laid down His life as a willing sacrifice for us. You know, in all reality, when you think about Jesus dying willfully, you think about, well, when did He choose to do that? If you search through the Bible, it's very clear that Jesus made the choice to die upon the cross in eternity past. Long before this world came into being is when he decided, he said, yes, I would be willing to go into the world to be a sacrifice for sins. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus before time began. See, God determined that we would be saved through the blood of Jesus. I mean, we know clearly that it was before the foundation of the world that God chose us, but He chose us how? He chose us in Him. 
That is, he choose, chose us in Christ. That means that before the foundation of the world, Jesus was coming, ready, prepared, willing to die upon that cross. Now, when you think about Jesus coming and dying for our sins, don't picture Jesus in all of his glory, face to face with the Father in eternity past, saying, I don't know if I want to do this, Father. I just don't want to go. Jesus was eager. He was willing. He wanted to go. You know, from time to time in the Brandon home, we have an opportunity to do something or go someplace. And there are times in which one of my children say, Dad, I don't want to go. I don't want to do that. And um, I guess my only child, who most often resists, is in the front seat. NSR, when you resist, said, Dad, I don't want to go. You know, I'd rather stay home playing your Legos. What does Dad tell you, SR? You have to go. And when Dad says you have to go, that ends all arguments, or it should end all arguments. It continues to carry on sometimes. But SR knows, and my children know, that when I see something that would be good for them to do, even though they don't want to do it, I'm going to push them to do it because I know the profitability to them. And when you think about God the Father and God the Son, eternity past, don't think about God saying, Son, you have to go. It wasn't like that. Jesus came to earth to die willingly. And when you grasp that, that's really the one point of my sermon this morning, when you grasp that, my aim is to to make the cross more glorious than it was before. To continue to give you reasons to glory in the cross of Christ. Because you'll see Jesus coming and dying upon the cross because He wanted to die. Things were absolutely in His control. In fact, Jesus even said in Mark 10.45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to die upon the cross. That's why He came. And I know this text is all preparation and preparatory, but what it teaches us about the cross is that Jesus did so willingly. Let's read the passage together. Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. Our text really picks up this morning from last week. Last week we looked at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. His soul being deeply grieved to the point of death. Wanting to be alone with his father, he told his disciples to to stay there and keep watch so he could be alone with his father and prayed in anguish, My father, if possible, remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Tremendously difficult time for Jesus with the weight of our sin upon his shoulders. He was standing firm while his disciples were faithlessly sleeping. But at this point, really to bring us up to speed in this text, I want to ask you a question. Why did Jesus go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray? If he was looking for an exclusive place all alone, there were plenty of places to find. He could have remained in Jerusalem, found another upper room they could have rented. He could have left the city and gone the few miles to, to Bethany, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, just over the, over the slope of the hill, about four miles away from Jerusalem. In fact, every night when he was in Jerusalem during the day, he slept in Bethany at night. So he'd been there often. He knew what a desolate place that was. He could have gone to the home of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and spent some time there. He could have continued beyond Bethany because beyond Bethany to the east... It's massive wilderness. Nobody would bother him there. The time the sun set, it would have been a cool of the day, cool of the night. He could have gone out there, be undisturbed for several hours without any problem at all. It would have just taken him probably 20 minutes past Bethany walking, and there would be nobody around. There are many opportunities to get away, but why did he choose Gethsemane? I think it was precisely because Judas knew that Jesus would be in Gethsemane. I believe Jesus went to Gethsemane to facilitate his arrest. I said last week that Judas was quite familiar with the place as Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And Judas knew that in the garden would be a place that Judas could come looking for him. And see, Jesus wasn't playing hide and seek. He was playing hide and be found is what he was playing. Right. Look back to verse 45. When he found his disciples still sleeping, he said, Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Arise, and let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus, even here, is anticipating being found by Judas. Verses 45 and 46 weren't said after Judas came on the scene. I mean, it's one thing for Judas to come on the scene with this whole multitude and Jesus saying, well, guys, gigs up, time's over. But this was before he came, right? This was before Jesus showed up in the garden. This was before Jesus was captured. This was before he was taken into custody. He said this, Arise and let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And then verse 47 makes this clear. While Jesus was still speaking, it's then that Judas came up. Behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Jesus knew that they were coming. 
He anticipated that they were coming. He told his disciples to go and meet them. Now, it may have been just sovereignly. We don't know. They said, well, here's the time. Jesus is going to be here. I mean, I think about him praying. You know, perhaps he's got his eyes shut. Perhaps he's got his eyes to heaven. His arm outstretched like he would pray sometimes, pleading with God. And here's this multitude coming from behind him. He's got eyes in the back of his head, knowing they're coming. Or perhaps, you know, he, he got away from praying. And maybe he could see this, this light flickering in the, in the distance. You know, hundreds, perhaps even some people estimate this as thousand people coming with lanterns to arrest Jesus. He knew it was coming, and I want you to notice that he had every opportunity to escape. I mean, he could have chosen a different place in which to pray. When they knew that they were coming, Jesus said, oh, here they come. He could have slipped out the back door of the Garden of Gethsemane. When the disciples knew that Jesus, Judas was coming, they could have made a run for it. It's dark. Maybe they could have slipped away in the darkness. There are many possibilities. I was going over my sermon with my children last night. And I said, what could Jesus have done? And, and they came up with a solution I didn't think about. They said, well, he could have disappeared. He could have. Just left. But Jesus chose to stay and to face his betrayer head on. And here's my point. I'm not sure if I mentioned it. Here it is. He didn't run. He didn't run. How different this is than many. I think about the story of William Tyndale, who lived in England during the early 1500s for printing the Bible and distributing it to anyone who could read or anyone who wanted it. He was in massive trouble with the authorities in England. And he was on the run for eight years. Running for eight years, trying to stay away from the authorities. And he spent much of his time away from England as a fugitive. He'd stay wherever there would be people who were sympathetic to his mission and his cause. So sometimes he'd find a city that, that, where he printed the Bible even, where they saw money coming in as a result of this. They were sympathetic to the Protestant Reformation taking place, and they were helpful, and he could find safe refuge in a city. But when found out, or maybe things in the climate change, he'd go on to another city. He was betrayed by a man named Henry Phillips, who came to Antwerp where Tyndale was staying with the whole purpose of capturing Tyndale. The story is interesting. Phillips came to know Tyndale and frequently dined with him, pretending to be his friend. He'd often speak with Tyndale about the state of the church and the need for reform. Oh, the church needs to be reformed. Tyndale, you're doing a great job printing these Bibles and we need to press on and keep doing this. One day in 1535, Henry Phillips came and, and developed such trust with Tyndale that he invited him to go and eat lunch with him. It was an opportune time. and They walked through the narrow valleys of Antwerp, the city kind of around, and they arrived at the door. And um, Henry Phillips opened the door and backed away. Tyndale kind of backed away said, you go first. And Henry Phillips said, no, 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 you go first. And as he's going, kids, you can see on your note, there's Henry Phillips behind saying, this is the guy. This guy, look, get him. And he pushed him in, and these guys were waiting there to ambush him, and they got him, and they uh, handcuffed him, and bound him, and took him off to the castle of Vilvorde, where he stayed for 18 months as a prisoner in a cold, dark dungeon cell, where afterwards he was burned at the stake for heresy. It's amazing if you read the, the statements of why he was burned at the stake. It's like, that's us. He believes everything that we believe. He's burned at the stake. Now, I say this. Had William Tyndale known that Henry Phillips was going to betray him, I'm sure Tyndale would have been out the door to the next city on the run. 
He was on the run for eight years. But in the hour of betrayal for Jesus, Jesus didn't run. Jesus didn't run because he had a date with the Roman cross and he wasn't going to be late for the date. So he didn't run. Secondly, he didn't resist. This is verses 48 through 50. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. I want you to notice here, there's no resisting arrest from Jesus. He knew that Judas, the betrayer, had come to betray him. He knew that Judas was doing so right now, as verse 45 says, the hour is at hand. And he didn't resist in any way. He was putting into practice his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he told his disciples, Do not resist him who is evil. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And at this moment in time, Jesus was doing this very thing. Evil people came to arrest him. And Jesus didn't resist him. He allowed himself to be captured with no resisting, no attempting to refuse to change. Jesus willingly put out his hands to be bound. The scene as John tells it in John chapter 18 is amazing. And it really helps fill in this point how Jesus didn't resist his arrest. Let me read John chapter 18. Judas then, having received the cohort and the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him. There it is. He knew all was going to happen. He went forth into the crowd. He boldly walked into the crowd and said, Whom do you seek? They answered him. They said, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to him, I am. Or I am he. Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. He could have said, Yep, yep, he's it. When therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again, therefore, Jesus said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. I mean, you almost get the sense that these soldiers didn't really want to arrest Jesus at all. Jesus had to be the one to initiate his arrest and make sure that it took place. Jesus was the one who spoke first. He said, Whom do you seek? And when he confessed that he was the one, they retreated rather than advancing. And Jesus had to go after them again. Listen, I'm the one. Take me, not them. Now, I hope you notice the, the irony or the strangeness or the absurdity of this. You know, maybe a modern day parallel might, might help you to see that. You know, think about a guy named Frank Johnson, notorious mobster, longtime ringleader of a, of a big drug operation. Through some battles in court, the police finally obtained a warrant for his arrest. Right? He's on 4th Street, and we can go get him, according to a tip. And so they go, acting quickly. A dozen squad cars come with their, their lights flashing, surrounding the house. At 11 p.m., all the police cars are there. Sharpshooters outside. Police officers come to the door, pistols in hand, break down the door to get Frank Johnson. What's Frank Johnson doing? 
He's just sitting in his lazy boy chair saying, hey, welcome, fellas. Who are you looking for? And they say, Frank Johnson. And Frank says, I'm he. And the police officers back off and almost go out the door. And Frank says, no, wait, guys, guys, you broke into my house. You came in unannounced, knocking down my door. You must be looking for someone. Who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Frank Johnson. He says, I'm he. And again, they debated. They delayed. And Frank finally said, listen, I'm the guy you're looking for. You take me, leave the others alone. Here, let me take your handcuff. Here, put it around here. Take me away. I mean, you can see how absurd that our police officers are trained to identify, subdue, and capture thieves and criminals. But to see them balk and delay, it's exactly what took place with this multitude. They balked and delay, resisted in their arrest, and it seems to be Jesus who so initiated his arrest. Not resisting, but even initiating it. It's because he was willing to be the sacrifice on the cross. Now, I find it so amazing he didn't resist when I think about how I was betrayed. Some of the saddest verses in all the Bible come right here. That a friend betrayed him. David spoke how difficult such a thing is. He said in Psalm 55, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. To think of a friend betraying him cut down to his core. Psalm 41 says the same thing. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You know, it's hard to bear when it's your friend. It's hard to bear when it's your companion. An enemy... No problem. We expect resistance from our enemy, but a friend, that hurts. And it hurts really bad. And that's what Jesus calls Judas. Right here, look at verse 50. Friend, do what you have come for. What an amazing thing that Jesus even calls Judas friend in the act of betrayal. Now, some have rightly pointed out this friend isn't like, hey, friend. It's more like, you know, hey, companion. It's more cordial, but it still is cordial rather than being hostile. And again, Jesus is merely applying the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus told His disciples to love their enemies. That's what Jesus was doing at this very moment, was loving His enemies. His betrayer, it says here, gave Him a kiss. Now this kiss isn't just like a small peck on the cheek. And you look in the Greek text, it's katafileo, which means an affectionate kiss. I mean, I want you to picture like two Russians who haven't seen each other for a long time. Oh, Igor! Hey, I am Victor! How you doing? You know, and they give the old Eastern European hug and embrace. That's what it was with Judas. Here's Judas betraying Jesus. Oh, Jesus! Oh, how are you? You know, oh, you know, really identifying him just absolutely clearly. I say this because the other places where this word is used is when 
In Acts 20, verse 37, when the Ephesian elders repeatedly kissed Paul, embracing him and weeping aloud as they knew they'd never see him again. Paul! Mm, oh, Paul! You know, we're not going to see you ever again. It's the word used to describe the father's embrace of the prodigal son. Coming and hugging, affectionately kissing him. It describes the outpouring of love and affection that the forgiven woman expressed to Jesus. She was weeping, wetting his tears, his feet with her tears, and kissing his feet just, just all over because of a just affectionate love. And here was Judas, hypocrite all the way, saying, Hail, Rabbi! And yet Jesus, unbelievably reserved, didn't speak out against Judas in any way, didn't resist his arrest in any way. Rather, he called Judas his friend. A third point, not only did he not run, he didn't resist, he didn't retaliate. Look at verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? Matthew doesn't give the identity of these two men. He doesn't tell us who drew the sword and who got the ear cut off. John tells us it was Peter who took out the sword. And it was a slave's name, Malchus, who got his ear chopped off. And, and I think about Peter. At this point, when he pulled out his sword, he said, hey, this is it. These guys have come to arrest Jesus with swords and clubs. There's going to be a tremendous fight. And you know what I promised my Lord? I promised, like it says back in verse 35, even if it meant dying... I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. Now, here's my chance to prove myself. I'm going down fighting, taking out his sword, going for the head of Malchus. Malchus must have been young with good reactions, bent away, and only got his ear. This moment, Jesus stopped everything. He changed the entire situation. In Peter's mind, this was war. This is fighting. This is gang street fighting. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Now's not the time for that. He said, put your sword back in its place. And then Jesus said, if now is the time to fight, Jesus said, I can easily win this fight. Easy. Because I know that I have 12 legion of angels at my disposal. 12 legion of angels. Now, a legion, 6,000 angels. So 12 legion is, see, 12 times 6,000. What is it? 72,000 angels that Jesus could have at his disposal to be commander-in-chief over what they ought to do. And angels are pretty powerful. You can read in 2 Kings 19 of how one angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Struck them dead. The power of 72,000 angels... Okay, multiply. What is 72,000 times 186,000 Assyrians? I don't know. I didn't do that math. You can come and tell me later, but it's in the millions. Maybe a billion. Angels at the disposal of Jesus 
to conquer. You think he could have beat this crowd of a thousand? He could have sacked Rome. Think about how easy that is for him to have done that. And I think about these 72,000 angels. Maybe they were watching the scene and saying, Oh, Holy One, look what they're doing to your son. Can we go and rescue him? I mean, they are ministering spirits, right? Can we go and rescue him? Let us go, let us go. And they're, they're right on the edge wanting to come down. And the father is holding his hands out. He says, no, 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 don't go. Can't go. See, because my son and I had this conversation in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to conquer this world in a different way. Oh, certainly the angels can come and can conquer. But Jesus doesn't need your help right now. And you know, what took place in the days of Jesus is so like what's taking place today. The angelic realm that beholds the suffering of the righteous are ready and willing to come upon this earth and gather up the elect. Protect them from the wrath of God. They're ready to bundle the others and cast them into the furnace of fire. And what stops them from coming? It's the almighty power of God. Saying, no, you just stay here. You wait a little while. And in fact, it's the delay. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the kindness, the mercy, the patience of God ought to lead you to repentance. Because there will be a day, and you just read Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24, God's going to release the angels, going to say, Jesus, go return to earth. And they're going to gather up the elect, and they're going to throw the wicked into the furnace of fire where they'll burn with hell forever. It's only the sovereign hand of God that's protecting them to come. And what is interesting is I think that Jesus gave us a precedent for how we ought to follow Jesus in the future. See, Christianity is a religion of peace. It conquers not through the sword, but through the power of love and perseverance. Just as Jesus conquered that way, so also the Father is holding back the angels, saying, you also need to conquer that way as well. The early church conquered through love. For 300 years after the death of Christ, Christians faced a tremendous amount of persecution. Many of the early Christians died for their faith. And Philip Schopp, described how it was Christianity that eventually triumphed over the Romans. And he describes how. He said, No merely human religion could have stood such an ordeal of fire for 300 years. The final victory of Christianity over Judaism and heathenism and the mightiest empire of the ancient world, a victory gained without physical force by the moral power of patience and perseverance of faith and love, is one of the sublimest spectacles of history and one of the strongest evidences of the divinity uh, and indestructible life of our religion. In other words, the early church conquered Rome so that it came to be called the Holy Roman Empire. Not through swords, not through judicial legislation, not through force but through the power of persecuted lives remaining faithful, the people more and more just became convinced that they changed the name to the Holy Roman Empire, 325 A.D. And throughout the centuries, there have been times where the church has taken up the sword in her own cause, and I believe it's wrong. I believe it's wrong. The sword is for the state. Paul says in Romans chapter 13 about how the governmental authorities bear the sword to punish the evildoers. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 52. 
He says, if you use the sword, right, to kill another, the government will rightly accuse you of murder and you shall perish by that same sword. See, Christianity is not a religion that conquers the use of force. Oh, it could if God would choose to release His angelic realm and fight. God would take the earth just like that. And there will be a day in which that will happen and you'll see it. That's not the way God has ordained it. God has ordained somehow, some way, I don't know why, but that's through the suffering of his saints in persecution and difficulties, showing God to be true, and every man found a liar, trusting in that God, and in the world seeing what's true about Christianity. It's not because we're most powerful. In 1887, Ernest Shirtleff was graduating from Andover Theological Seminary. Known for his poetic ability, his classmates asked him to write a hymn, which the graduating class could all sing on graduation day. He wrote, Lead on, O King Eternal. We sang this morning in our prayer time. When you look at the words, you see how appropriate it is for seminary graduates just ready to get out and minister the gospel of Christ. It says, Lead on, O King Eternal. The day of March has come. Henceforth, in fields of conquest, thy tent shall be our home. Through days of preparation, thy grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease. And holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. That's the way of Christianity. It's with deeds of love and mercy that the heavenly kingdom comes. See, we don't fight with a sword because our battle is a spiritual battle. Paul said that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. When Jesus stood before Pilate, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. That's what Jesus said. My kingdom is a different kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not fought with swords and shields. It's fought with deeds of love and mercy. Now, I'm not talking about pacifism. I'm not talking there's no need ever for war, but I'm simply saying this, that worldly struggles are for kingdoms in this world, and there are reasons for war. And if our government decrees it, we ought to get behind it. But the reasons for war aren't to propagate the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God grows when people are faithful to follow Jesus Christ in humility and patience and love. And that's what Jesus said here. I can appeal, I can conquer, but that's not the way of my plan. Another reason comes here in verse 54 is that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. It's got to be that way. I can't fight Peter because if I fight, the Scriptures won't be fulfilled. If you stop this thing, Peter, the Scriptures won't be fulfilled. Now, in saying this, he didn't refer to specific Scriptures. In fact, he really didn't have time. He was just standing before he couldn't say, okay, well, let me open you up to... I mean, for hours and hours he expanded upon them about what the Scriptures taught on top of that, it was a mystery, right? Revealed in the Old Testament, veiled in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. And that when Jesus came back for 40 days, he was teaching them of how the Old Testament prophesied of his sufferings. And then they kind of really understood. 
He just mentions the Scriptures. And, you know, I think that Jesus had in mind just the, the whole scope of, of all biblical revelation which spoke of the sufferings of the Messiah. Perhaps in his mind he may have been thinking about Psalm 22, which has been called the, the Psalm of the Cross. Describes so accurately the things that took place when Jesus was upon the cross. Maybe he was thinking about Psalm 69 and the numerous enemies that would come upon the Messiah without a cause. Maybe he's referring to Psalm 88. It's described the desertion of his friends, which took place here in verse 56. Maybe he was alluding all the way back, thinking in his mind to Genesis 3.15, where it speaks about how the seed of the serpent must bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And if Jesus isn't handed over to the authorities, he can't suffer as Messiah must suffer according to the Scriptures. Well, let's continue on. When Jesus was arrested, he didn't run, didn't resist, didn't retaliate. And here's my last one. Didn't rant or rave. This comes about in verses 55 and 56. Jesus here is confronted by crowds of people. Jesus calmly receives them, doesn't go into rant, doesn't accuse anybody, doesn't scream in protest about what they're doing, merely points out to them the absurdity of what they're doing. Jesus was no criminal, and the world knew it. I mean, contrast the example of Jesus' humble submission to his arrest with that of Queen Athaliah. Remember her? She was queen in Judah for seven years. She pushed her way into the queenship by murdering all of the offspring of her son. Her son was murdered. said, oh, one of his offspring could be on the throne, but she had them all killed so that she could be on the throne except for one. Who was saved? Baby Joash, Jehoshaphat, the nurse, kind of took her away and protected her protected this little boy for seven years. And for seven years, Judah suffered under the wicked reign of Athaliah. And then there was a time to reveal that she wasn't the rightful queen after all, but it was Joash. Hundreds of guards entered the temple, set Joash on the throne. They clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! Long live the king! Hundreds of soldiers saying this. And Athaliah was often about, she could hear it. She said, What is that noise? And she went, and when she discovered that Joash was on the throne and that she was being dethroned, you know what she did? Treason! Treason! I say treason! And she protested. She said, this isn't fair. And I think that she was taken away, kicking and screaming down to where she was put to death. Here she was a criminal, should have been removed from office, and yet she cried foul. Unlike Jesus, who wasn't a criminal who was arrested, he barely spoke a word, entrusting himself to the Father. Peter wrote of this great example of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. He didn't threaten the mob when they came upon him. In fact, through the rest of the narrative, we're going to find Jesus saying, oh, but a few words. He has to be asked and directed and commanded to speak before he speaks. That he might be silent before his shears as a lamb. Jesus simply says this, verse 55, right? Turning to the multitudes now, he says this. Have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. Jesus said, I was in the temple often. 
speaking openly with all the people. In fact, he could have probably identified, yeah, you all remember when I answered these questions. The Pharisees came up and asked him questions, and he answered those questions openly for all to see. They knew who he was. They knew what he had done. The testimony of all who saw him was that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He was helping the poor, being kind to the needy, giving hope to the hopeless. The days of Jesus, diseases were almost non-existent. Now, I think about the Romans. When the Romans looked at Jesus, what did they think? They loved people like that. In fact, even our government, the United States government, loved people like Jesus. It's why organizations like churches and hospitals and other social service organizations receive special privileges from the state. Right? And those who donate to organizations such as that can receive tax breaks. Why? Because they're in the business of helping people, which in turn helps the company, helps the country. And the United States wants to foster that because the church and social services can do things the government never can do. And so they want to encourage that and help that. The Romans wouldn't have had a problem with Jesus and what he's doing. The religious people should have loved Jesus. He was out helping the poor with real needs. Imagine a guy comes into our assembly, just has a heart for people. You know, he's a, a rich physician to help give people money who are poor, helps healing people. He just goes out, gives encouraging words. He's a rich physician preacher, maybe, you know, and just out and about, who, who knows everything about anything, can fix anything. It's just out and about helping people. We would embrace someone like that. Jewish people should have embraced something like that. They knew that their religion consists of visiting orphans and widows in their distress. If you've been reading along in our Bible reading together, you'd have read how Job defended his own righteousness. He defended it by saying, look at how I've helped people. Job 29. I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the, bl- to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I investigated the case which I did not know. When religious leaders should have seen him doing good and embraced him. But though the Romans should have embraced him and though the religious people should have embraced him, they chose to arrest him in the night, the crowd of people all around him. Psalm 69, verse 4 is so true. They hate me without a cause. There's nothing in Jesus that caused them to hate him. Oh, there was this obscure charge that eventually he was accused of being, you know, a, a riotous ringleader of a, of a new sect that would cause disturbances and thus, you know, drew the paranoia of the Jewish people and drew the paranoia of Romans. But really, there was no reason to arrest Jesus. Ultimately, you know why he was arrested? Because his light exposed their darkness. And they didn't want their darkness to be exposed. So they shut out the light. Another reason why, verse 56, the scriptures of the prophets had to be fulfilled. Again, Jesus raised this issue of scriptures. Uh, He narrows it down to talk about even the prophets more than the psalm writer. It's more than Genesis. He's talking about the prophets. And I think in his mind here is probably Isaiah 53. He talks about the suffering servant. And we can read all the way through there and you just see the passion narrative coming again and again and again and again. Maybe he's talking about Zechariah 13 verse 7 which we saw back in verse 31 last week. I'll strike down the shepherd. The sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
Right? That's exactly what happens in verse 56. There's a prophecy. That's one of the things the prophets wrote. It says, I'm arrested, so I'm arrested wrongly. You strike down the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. All these things, I trust, came into his mind. See, when Jesus was arrested, he didn't run, he didn't resist, he didn't retaliate, he didn't rant or rave. Rather, he entrusted himself to the will of his Father. And I close with this question. Where did Jesus find the power to do this? Where did he find the power? I think he found the power in Gethsemane through prayer. He found the power, not my will, but yours be done. And glory to God that he was our willing sacrifice. I mean, I've just been thinking about this this week. How much greater is the sacrifice of Jesus than the sacrifice of bulls and goats? I mean, none of the bulls and goats or turtle doves who were ever sacrificed had any idea what was going on. They didn't know that they were special temple animals raised simply to kill for their sin, for the sins of the people. They had no clue. They were all unwilling sacrifices. But Jesus knew fully all of the ramifications of everything that the cross meant and thus makes His sacrifice so much more glorious and so much more to be treasured by us. And my aim this morning is really to show you how willing Jesus was in His sacrifice, that the cross and the view of it, the understanding of it might continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger, that you would indeed glory in the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask Yvonne and Amy to come. We're going to sing at the end of my prayer, Oh, how He loves you and me. That's why He went to the cross, because of His love for us. Rebel worms. What an amazing thing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for the the clarity of this passage. which shows and demonstrates beyond all reasonable doubt that Jesus died because He wanted to die. Jesus died as a willing sacrifice for us. I pray, O Lord, this week we would reflect upon that and realize merely that is an expression of His love. Greater love has no one than this than He laid down His life for His friends. And that's who Jesus laid down His life for, for us. Those who hated Him, those who rebelled against Him and yet have found mercy and grace, the cross of Christ. God, I pray that even this week You would loom the cross big in our lives, that when temptation comes, we'd look to Jesus and we would look to the cross and see of everything that we have been forgiven and rejoice in glorifying God and then say and ask ourselves, how then shall we sin in these matters? You have showed such gracious love kindness, and affection to us. May it stir our hearts, God, to love others even more. We pray in Christ's name.